Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCabot. Summer is a time for beach days, campfires, trips to the cottage, and one of our favorite pastimes, the road trip. Although we aren't able to take all of you listeners on an actual road trip, over the course of the next few episodes, we'll be going on a virtual trip from sea to shining sea, exploring the fascinating history of places across Canada. It's time to buckle up, grab your favorite snacks, and keep your GPS or map handy because we're heading on a virtual road trip. First up, the East Coast. All right, so if we're going on a road trip, even just a virtual one, obviously the most important part of a road trip is the snacks. Like, before you do anything else, you got to get your snacks in order. So what is on your must-have? Like, what is your snack essential for road trips? I really like trail mix. I don't know, because it's like the best of everything. (laughs) Wrong. It is the best of nothing. It's trail mix. That's unfortunate opinion you got there, Robin, but I'm going to have to disagree with you. It's it's food for like little woodland creatures. I know. I I do think it's deer food. But if you're going to go see wildlife, you have to bring something when you go visit people. You have to live like the wildlife. (laughs) (laughs) I like to get really into character (laughs) that's your that's your hostess gift yes (laughs) i love raisins i love nuts i can't be contained you don't even get the one with chocolate in it no it gets sticky and it melts you guys are the only good part about it you guys are crazy yes that's the part that i pick out everyone's like oh what do i what what's my favorite part of going somewhere raisins (laughs) (laughs) nick yeah what's What's your what's up robin what's your snack essential um, I, I like, I know it's controversial because it doesn't do well in cars, but, um, chips. Oh, yes. Smart food. Yes. Like, uh, those smart food popcorn. Yes. That white cheddar popcorn. Yes. Uh, and, uh, also chocolate. You are welcome on my road trip any day. So- no raisins allowed. <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to sit in the cab <laughs> of the truck with the dog. <laughs> What kind of chips? Is it like salt and vinegar chips? Or like I, I do any? love uh, Miss Vicky's. Oh, nice. Shout yes. out to Miss Vicky's. Please sponsor us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> those salt and vinegar chips are unreal. Nice. Yeah. Huge fan. Can't be beat. And what about you? So I, I just want some sour, sugar-coated gummies. Fuzzy peaches, sour keys, those neon gummy worm things. Like, I don't care what it is, so long as it's gummy and covered in citric acid. I want my mouth to burn yes. the sourness. It's just like when you eat too many salt and vinegar chips all at once. Yeah, and similar. You scrape the roof of your mouth, mm-hmm. and then um, it burns for two days, and because you have no self control. Yeah, like I want, I want cavities at the end of my road trip. I want memories and cavities. It's like a souvenir. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where did you get that cavity? Oh, I got that one on the East Coast. Speaking of which, first up on our road trip, the East Coast. If you were to visit our first stop between 1928 and 1971. <laughs> chances are you would have made the journey not by automobile, but by boat. Located in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Pier 21 was an immigration facility and a point of arrival for nearly one million immigrants to Canada during its operational years. Originally known as Transit Shed 21, the building was constructed as a cargo shed before it was retrofitted as an immigration facility. Pier 21 was part of the larger effort to develop an ocean terminal at Halifax's south end. 
The terminal, which included not just ocean ports, but also a railway station, hotel, grain elevators, and government buildings, solidified Halifax's place as the major port of entry for immigrants and visitors arriving from Europe. When Pier 21 opened in 1928, the large two-story structure included freight storage on the first level, with the Federal Department of Immigration on the second. The second floor also housed a reception area, waiting rooms, a cafeteria, a nursery, and a medical center. There were also dormitories and a detention area. So, a lot of things in this facility. It's impressive. It kind of reminds me of Parks and Recreation, how they have all the different floors that you can go to in their municipality. Exactly. The new facility had the capacity to handle more than it did in its first decade of operation. Immigration was hampered by the Great Depression and by the war years, during which time Pier 21 became not just a point of arrival, but a point of departure. During the Second World War, hundreds of thousands of soldiers and military personnel boarded ships at Pier 21 that carried them to battlefields in Europe. Many, of course, would never return. After the war, it was the war brides and their children arriving from Europe who made up the bulk of immigrants passing through Pier 21. Since then, immigrants from around the world, including Britain, Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, Greece, and Portugal passed through the terminal on their way to their final destination, usually boarding trains that would carry them to central or western Canada. By the 1960s, the boat traffic to Pier 21 began to dwindle as air travel took over. Instead of ocean terminals, airports became primary arrival points for new immigrants. In 1971, Pier 21 closed its doors. The building then served for 20 years as the home of the Nova Scotia Nautical Institute and, after that, art studios. In 1996, the site was designated a National Historic Site and three years later reopened as a museum. From 1999 to 2011, the museum was operated by the Pier 21 Society, after which it became a national museum, the Canadian Museum of Immigration. Today, a trip to Pier 21 offers information on the history of the building itself, as well as on the wider story of immigration to Canada. The museum also houses an archive and research center where you can learn more about the ships and people who passed through Pier 21 during the 20th century. You can also listen to, or if you are an immigrant, record, oral histories of Canadian immigrants both past and present. And also, fun fact, Library and Archives Canada also has a site there where you can go in and they have a consultation area with archivists who are there who can help you in researching things. While they don't actually have the records on site, those are all still here in Ottawa, you can visit with archivists. And I know one of them who's out there. We used to work together down here in Ottawa. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah. if you're there, you can also talk to an archivist. So, so it still operates as a one-stop shop. Totally. Completely. Yeah. yeah. Which is amazing. And there's really neat art there, too. Mm -hmm. Speaking from just listening to the oral histories they've done, there's some really phenomenal interviews, and I think it's like a great place if you're interested in that kind of history for Canada. Oh, absolutely. I've heard some of those interviews too, and they are so fascinating. Just like what people have gone through to come to this country or just to even leave the countries that they were originating from um, is just absolutely remarkable. And it's such a beautiful thing that, that Pier 21 is recording them and, and giving people a place to be able to catalog their memories so that they'll be housed for future generations. Continuing with the theme of immigration, the next stop on the virtual tour is where some of the very first immigrants landed over a thousand years ago. Located at the tip of the Great Northern Peninsula in Newfoundland, Lanso Meadows is an 11th century Viking settlement that remains the only verified Viking site in North America. Though archaeologists have determined that the Norse arrived and settled here in the 11th century, it's unclear how long the settlement lasted or what the relationship was like between the Norse and the indigenous peoples. Excavations have uncovered the remains of eight buildings, including several huts, 
a large hall, and two pit houses. The buildings were sod houses built around wooden frames, which you can see today when visiting the site as they've been reconstructed for visitors to experience. Artifacts found at the site suggest that Lonzo Meadows was more of an outpost for exploration than a permanent settlement. There is no evidence of any farming or agriculture which would have been present in a long-term settlement. Wood chips and slag, also known as waste, left from iron and smelting work show that the Vikings repaired ships here. There are also indicators of resource extraction, likely grapes and lumber. Hmm, tasty for a road trip snack. Grapes. Mm. Oh, and you know what um, grapes turn into? Wine. Wine. <laughs> and <the> raisins. <laughs> but more importantly, wine. That, that's a hard argument. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so, in fact, speaking of wine, mm. Viking sagas call the area Vinland, or the land of wine, because of the many grapes that grow there. So, <laughs> I would like to say that I win that one. They didn't call it Raisin land. It's because they just didn't know. <laughs> are, are they still making? Uh, they still making wine in Newfoundland? We should drive there and find out. Los O Meadows became a national historic site in 1975, and in 1978, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Today, it is under the stewardship of Parks Canada. A visit to the site allows visitors to see the original sod buildings, go inside the reconstructed main hall, explore interactive exhibits, and view original artifacts. If you want to extend your Viking experience, there is a themed art gallery as well as a gift shop nearby. Or you can visit Norseman Restaurant and sample some Norse-inspired cuisine. Ooh, what do you think that'd be? Raisins. It would be wine, obviously. (laughs) We've already established that. They named it after wine. I think that's going to be mostly wine. I think you've lost this argument. Uh, But I will never give up. (laughs) (laughs) Never give up, never surrender. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's a deep cut from Galaxy Quest. Thank you. (laughs) Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, rest in peace. (laughs) Rip. Also, Sam Rockwell. Despite being Canada's smallest province, PEI draws over 1.5 million visitors each year because of its beautiful landscape, beaches, golfing, cuisine, and cultural sites, especially those related to a certain favorite redhead, which we've also done an episode of. Go check that one out. Check it out. And of Green Gables. While buildings and landscapes associated with the author Lucy Maud Montgomery and her fictional creation, Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables, are often at the forefront of Prince Edward Island tourism, there are other cultural sites and museums worthy of note. In addition to all things Anne, the island offers lighthouses. The island features 63 lighthouses in total, seven are now historic sites. A potato museum. Heck yes! That's where I'm going. Which celebrates any and everything related to the potato. Province House, where the Charlottetown Conference was held and resulted in the Confederation of Canada, various historic house museums, the Lennox Island Mi'kmaq Cultural Centre, and the Acadia Museum, among many others. Collectively, these sites offer a broader understanding of the diverse history of Prince Edward Island. They fit a lot of things in that tiny island. You gotta go. On this road trip, we are stopping at the Wyatt Historic House Museum, located in Summerside, Prince Edward Island's second largest city. One of the island's historic house museums, the Wyatt House, is unique in Canada for a number of reasons. While many house museums across the country were created in honor of the great men who once inhabited the space, the Wyatt House celebrates a family who once lived in the home with a particular focus on the three women of the household. Holla! What up? Ladies! (laughs) Ladies! Ladies being ladies! (laughs) Just being ladies! The museum's focus on the women's histories, coupled with the fact that the home is bursting at the seams with furniture, decor, textiles, photographs, journals, and letters that once belonged to the Wyatt family, makes this site a truly special and engaging place. 
Built in 1867, the same year as Canadian Confederation, the house now largely reflects what the home looked like between 1890 to 1920, with the exception of a 1950s kitchen and bathroom. I mean, you got to get that plumbing, right? Am yeah. I right? Mm-hmm. This period reflects when James Edward, known as Ned, and Cecilia Wyatt lived in the home with their two daughters, Dorothy and Wanda. Tour guides bring guests through the barrier-free home, allowing visitors to enter each room and closely examine the array of objects belonging to the Wyatts. The furniture and objects in each room are used as entry points to speak about the various histories of the island, such as the booming shipbuilding industry of the 19th century and the fox farming craze of the early 20th century. The lives of Cecilia, Dorothy, and Wanda are also explored. As women of the upper class living in an urban center, their lived experiences definitely do not speak to the experience of all women living on the island at this time. However, the museum is used to narrate the very different lives of the three Wyatt women, ranging from pursuing higher education, adopting a life of domesticity, and living a life with debilitating chronic illness. Wanda's life in particular is highlighted during the guided tour. Before her passing in 1998, Dr. Wanda LaFergie Wyatt was one of the island's leaders in philanthropy for local arts, heritage, and culture. It was her decision to leave her family home, as well as two other properties, to the city of Summerside to be used for heritage purposes. How amazing is that? To, I'm sure that it would be really nice to be able to continue to hand that down to future generations of your own family, but to make the decision to actually bequeath it and use it for historical purposes, I wonder how many things are going to be done that are from like today's day and age that will actually be handed down in that same way. I'd like to think that there are some cool historical things that will continue on. The Wyatt Historic House Museum is definitely not to be missed while visiting the island. In addition to the varied and interesting histories the museum explores, the house sometimes also provides guests with a supernatural experience, although that's information that isn't often advertised. Spooky witches! Ghosts! I was going to say, Keely, um, that's just like your museum from your like your childhood experiences. The one with yeah. like, where you would go down to the basement, mm-hmm. and wasn't it like a rocking chair that would it start was... to rock? It's a special exhibition. If you're ever in Wallaceburg, check it out. <laughs> it's about um, the Baldoon mystery, and it is a rocking chair when you press a button that rocks on its own, and it's supposed to tell the story, and it does, I think, of the urban legend of the Baldoon witch. It's the best. <laughs> so it sounds like the Wyatt Historic House Museum is like right up your alley. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's So we need to have like a sub- version of this road trip which is where we go to like haunted locations that would be amazing and when we get to ottawa we would obviously do the haunted walk tour and you can also listen to our podcast episode on that where we went on a haunted walk highly recommend oh it's such a good one it's a great episode check it out if you want to hear them ghost stories (laughs) the final stop on today's road trip is beautiful new brunswick known for its densely forested landscape the province also features a number of historical attractions and museums such as the Village Historique Acadien, a chocolate museum. Hello, Nick. I'll be there. Me too. <laughs> Keely won't be. She'll be off with the rings. I never said I didn't like chocolate. That's <laughs> not true. Do it. You made your bed. You said you remove it from the trail mix. I think it doesn't belong enough. in trail mix, though. Anyways, there's a chocolate museum. We're obviously going. And King's Landing Historical Settlement, a living history museum or settlement. Very exciting. Our trip today, however, brings us to Metapanagiag Heritage Park. After opening in 2007, the Metapanagiag Heritage Park now functions as a world-class site for tourism, heritage resource management, and archaeological research. 
The park is located on the banks of the Miramichi River, and it houses and presents information about the Augustine Mount and the Oxbow site. Two incredible archaeological sites relating to the historic and present-day Mi'kmaq nation of Metapanegieg and ways of life along the Miramichi River. The Mi'kmaq have inhabited the land in this area since time immemorial and continue to celebrate their connection to the earth. In the 1970s, a company was planning to expand its gravel pit into the Metapanegieg community. An elder, Joe Augustine, visited the area with the knowledge that had been passed down to him through oral traditions and discovered that the area was an important ancestral burial site dating back to over 600 BC. This site is incredibly well preserved and has since become known as the Augustine Site and designated a National Historic Site of Canada. In 1977, Augustine also helped establish the Oxbow, an archaeological site that provides evidence of a Mi'kmaq settlement that existed continuously over the past 3,000 years. The site is described as, quote, well stratified because of the annual flooding of the river, which has preserved over time the various centuries of cultural material and development. The natural preservation of the site makes the Oxbow a very unique feature of Eastern Canada. Many of the archaeological remains, around 60,000 items, from the site now reside in the Archaeological Services Department of the New Brunswick government. The evidence from the site reveals that Oxbow was a thriving fishing community complete with villages, campsites, cemeteries, and food storage spaces for over 2,500 years. As part of Canada 150 celebrations, the Metapanegieg Heritage Park began working with the New Brunswick government to repatriate a large portion of the artifacts back to the community. As a news release from the Heritage Park states, quote, these artifacts provide a direct link to the community's history, its ancestors, and its proud Indigenous heritage, end quote. That sounds like a really cool initiative. It does, yeah. Whether you live on the East Coast or are planning a visit this summer, we hope that our trip through Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, PEI, and New Brunswick has given you some new places to explore. Join us next time on our Notice History road trip across Canada. And if there's some place that we've missed on our road trip or a place that you'd really like for us to catch, please reach out to us on social media at Notice History or send us an email at podcast at nohistory.ca. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Emily Cuggy and Leanne Guddy, with audio mixing by Keely McCavitt. For more information about the topics we covered today, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or find us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to help our podcast, we would love for you to leave us a review or tell your friends about us.